0: The views expressed on this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News.
1: Investors are ignoring a $5.3 trillion risk in America's West. And will India's Prime Minister Modi's recent budget handouts be enough for him to win re election? That's what we'll be discussing on this week's Views Room. From Reuters Breaking Views, I'm Jennifer Sabah, and I'm here with Anthony Curry. Hello, Anthony. Hi, Jen. Later in the program, we'll be handing over to our colleagues in Asia who will dig into the good, the bad, and the ugly of Narendra Modi's five years as India's prime minister and discuss whether he can win a second term in office in this April's election. But we start by diving into what you, Antony, are arguing is a huge risk that shareholders are blind to. And you've put an incredibly big number on it, 5.3 trillion. 5.3 trillion. What is the calamity you have unearthed? It's
0: all about lack of water. Water. My favorite topic.
1: All right. So it's water, the Colorado River. Yeah. Why are you... First of all, why are you looking at this now? Like
0: what... Well. The seven, the seven states in the river have been trying for a very long time, and you can actually go back to 2007, even before, to come up with a dr- what they're calling a drought contingency plan, which is basically that you know, they are in a long-term aridification, as people are calling it now. I shouldn't call it drought. It's been going on for 20 years. Um, and they're very, very close to each state coming up with a plan to tackle how to deal with the lower flows along the river. Um, but they weren't that close, so last Friday the US Bureau of Reclamation a part of the Department of Interior said right you've not hit our deadline we are now going to take over uh, managing this process from you unless you can get it done really quickly basically we're now asking every single one of the seven governors to tell us what they think they should do to sort out um, what happens in in this drought and then we'll work out how to allocate the water as best we can by say august
1: okay so this is seems like it must be a really big deal For the federal government, particularly this federal government under uh, President Donald Trump, to step in for the states. So I'm still like, the the river water flow is drying up, if you will. It's not as much water Mm -hmm. going, coursing through the Colorado River. That seems fine but i am trying to wrap my head around the risk why because right. that seems like it's a big deal of the government the stepping
0: one of the things that they're looking at i mean look, they, people have been overusing the, the the river's water for almost a century now so the reason why it's becoming an issue now is you've had 20 years of um of lower flows in the river and in fact a sci- uh, a bunch of scientists recently said half of that drop in flow can be allocated to climate change and it's getting worse um but the, the 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 Bureau of Reclamation and, and, and Commissioner Berman has been saying, look, if you look at the levels in the two dams, Powell uh, and uh, Mead. We've got a big problem here. Media is almost down to like is almost down to a where it'll be very difficult under many circumstances to pump electricity out, let alone to pump the water out. So they're getting really quite concerned. Is that the levels getting so low that it will be very difficult to use the water or or manage the water effectively, and that has implications for quality and everything else. So uh, that's absolutely. why they're getting in.
1: Okay. So, what are the top? uses for water other than i'm assuming drinking water
0: yeah that's a that's drinking water is always a very 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 small amount of, of use so oh, okay um so you've got 70 to 80 percent of the water is going to agriculture which is often the case around yeah. the world okay um and that's fine in fact the agricultural users have been uh, using this water for centuries um The rest of it goes to, you're right, it goes to municipalities uh, for use in drinking water and other domestic use. And also, of course, you've got industry uh, there as well. And they'll use it in in various ways, depending on on what their their business is. So, semiconductors will use it, and other technology companies will use it to cool stuff down. Others will use it as part of the process of manufacturing. Toyota's there, for example. Unilever has a big um, ice cream plant in the region. Uh, So, there are lots of different ways this water is being used by industry as well.
1: Okay, so industry, this is a good segue to talk about the 5.3 mm. trillion, because that's not municipalities using it. No, absolutely not. So um, I'm assuming that's agriculture. How did you kind of come up with this number?
0: Yeah, well, first of all, um, <clears throat> I looked at the the seven states as they are and said, okay, w- what's their annual GDP? And this, the combined GDP of the seven states is $4 trillion. Um, and that's about 20% of the US economy. Let's let's look at the uh, the, the companies that are based in the region or have significant operations in the region. That's not so easy to dig out. So all I did was say, okay, let's first of all look at the the constituents of the S&P 500, which are based in first of all six of the seven states, and then just in Southern California, the seventh state. Because the ones in Northern California, you think Facebook and all the others, they actually don't rely on the water of the Colorado River. So I just I just stuck to the and there are 38 that 38 companies that, that make from the S&P that I looked at here. And of course there are many other companies, um, and then there are those um, that uh, just report risks to a company called CDP, which is an investor lobby group. Uh, There's got companies there like. Raytheon, the defense company, Western Digital, which I think is also in the Colorado River Basin SP index that we created. So I looked at those and then a couple of frackers as well that are in the area. And I said, okay, let's just lump all of their market caps together. And that comes to 1.3 trillion, hence the 5.3 trillion. What I haven't done at all is look at the bond valuation there. So I've left out actually probably another big slug just to get to this 5.3 trillion.
1: Okay. Now, I need you to explain something to me because you said you keep saying seven states, right? Mm. So how does this work? Like, what, how do they split up the Colorado River mm. where it comes into their state? Like, how does? You Mostly, know, it seems like that's a recipe for not yeah. a good way to manage. Well, it.
0: I mean, this this is this is always the problem with with rivers that cross boundaries, whether it's state boundaries here in the U.S. or whether it's international boundaries elsewhere. You think of the the Nile. You think of the River Jordan in Israel. You can there are a number of rivers which where allocation of of the resource is a real problem. What's happened here is you've got seven states that that have A claim on the river. Um, You've got about 5 million acres of farmland, about 2 or 2.5 million acres of which is actually off the basin itself, so the water is transported there, for example, to parts of Southern California. Yeah,
1: so is California the main uh, California is the user. main
0: user. It, in fact, one constituent in California, the Imperial Irrigation District, which, as the name suggests, helps provide water to farmers, um, actually has the right to a fifth of the overall flow of the Colorado River, and it's right at the end and ships it in. Now, think back to that great movie by J- with Jack Nicholson in Chinatown. That was all about water rights, and that's basically the history of how, or a, a potted section of fictionalized history of how California got so many water rights to the Colorado River. So you have those issues quite a lot. That then introduces a real problem of water rights, which is another way of saying the governance is screwy. And um, so you've got seven states. The lower states, there are three of them in the so-called lower basin: Arizona, Nevada, and California, they have more um, right to the water than those in the upper states because they started using it first. and it's a it's a real mess. It's a burden of history from a 1922 agreement that divvied up the the river between these seven states. Arizona, for example, has some good claims, but the farmers have very low claims to the water because they started developing it later. So actually in this drought contingency plan they were coming up with, those Arizona farmers could lose a lot of their water. And maybe that's not a bad thing from a general perspective because a lot of what's produced in the area is alfalfa and other things which are both water intensive and used for cattle feed. So maybe you shouldn't be doing it in that region. but it's it's a really difficult, contentious process. And the fact that the seven states have got really, really close to an agreement is encouraging. But they're nowhere near enough. And then there's a lot more they've got to do because of climate change even beyond that.
1: OK. So you mentioned also that there are companies that have disclosed, I don't yeah. know, maybe this specific risk or, or not. Yes. But maybe you can talk a little more about that. Because what's happened to those companies that have kind of raised their hand and said this well, is a problem? Well, it's strange,
0: actually. Um, so some of them just disclose a small amount of risk. So Caesars. Um, uh, the entertainment company, that basically the, the gambling company in Nevada, said uh, to CDP, uh, which collates a lot of this data, said that we've got a, a little bit of revenue risk here. Um, others have said similar things. But the one that really stands out to me is Raytheon, the defense company, mm-hmm. uh, which said that we have a risk of up to 20% of our global revenue, which was about $25 billion a year or two ago, is at risk if um, if there is a real problem on the Colorado River. You think, OK, that's pretty big. So I started looking back through some of their statements to investors and elsewhere and they don't talk about water at all. Investors aren't asking about it. And if you track how their stock price has done, just over last year, when you had a lot of contentious and also positive moves to try and get these drought contingency plans sorted, um, there's basically no reaction from investors. In fact, on one or two pieces of news, the stock seem to go the other way. Now, granted, there's a lot of things happening last year that would affect a defence company's price, or indeed other companies' prices. You know, the fact of the tax changes, um, uh, tr- uh, tariffs, everything else. So let's not overdo this, but the fact there seems to be neither for that nor for the whole CDP element of 11 or 12 companies we look at, nor the 38 S&P 500 companies we've earmarked. None of these um, stocks or indices we created seem to to react at all to any news coming out, good or bad, about how this river is being divvied up, even though the implications could, for some of them, be quite high.
1: Is there a spirit of cooperation uh, among these different constituents, or because that sounds like a tall order? Yeah, to me.
0: There, there is. It's also very difficult, and one of the longer term issues is, is climate change. So th- this drought contingency plan they're coming, they're trying to come up with now, the seven states, both within the states and between them, um, has proved controversial enough that the upper four upper states at one point accused one Ar- um, Arizona municipality or municipal um, water district of. Basically abusing their rights to water in, I think Lake Mead, mm-hmm. um, saying they were they were sort of manipulating the data a bit, and even within Colorado itself and other places, there have been contentious uh, volleys of words between various users. Um, so it's tricky, but everyone knows there's a problem now, and everyone basically appreciates it's probably going to get worse. And you know, and it's not just about amount of water you have; it's about how it's delivered. The snowpack, which is where it's it's naturally conserved is reducing because of climate change. So you've got more rain. So if there's more rain, there's more floods, uh, which, you are not so used to. So if you're a fracker, if you're something else, how do you think through those risks or quality of of water risk if you're a municipality? So all these things they've got to think about.
1: So one thing I I want to get straight in my mind here is what you were saying about the snowpack. And I don't... If there's more rain, doesn't that mean that the water levels might be rising in the river? Like, how does that work exactly?
0: Well... uh, there are two issues, right? So there's, there's first of all, how how does the precipitation fall, and then there's how much you get. So first of all, there's less falling, and there's less there's less precipitation, and therefore less flow. So number one. Okay. Number two, the way it's being delivered is changing. There is now less snow in general. I mean, this year, especially in the past couple of weeks, there's a lot more uh, that's hit but in general there's less snow snow and if, if it's snow, snowpack that means it can stay in the mountains until it, and it gradually melts throughout the course so of the year so it's more
1: efficient is what you're saying a snowpack well, is more well, efficient no, than well no, it's a bunch not that it's more rain. efficient
0: it's, it's that it's still the way that the river has operated and the reason they put the, the dams where they did and how they all operate and how it's all done based on we know that the flow comes out of the out of the mountains at certain times which means we get a certain amount at certain points so If that's changing because um, you've got more rain than snow now, or or there is more rain than there was and less snow than there was, then you've got a different issue. The water's coming down at a different time. So that may change how you have to think about irrigating your crops or where you should be storing water, um, or even whether there will be floods.
1: How much power does the federal government have to force the issue to make this all happen? Or enforcement power, you know what I'm saying? That's,
0: That's the really tricky question because Again, it all goes back to the water rights. Now, interestingly, the commissioner of the the Bureau of Reclamation, uh, when speaking to journalists last week after she'd made the call that um, the states hadn't reached an agreement, she said, no, under a a Supreme Court ruling back in the 60s, we have a lot of power uh, over the lower basin states, which, of course, as I said, California especially has a lot of water rights, to impose a degree of action here. That's very unclear because if you're a water rights holder... and you In in a dry area, water rights are exceptionally valuable. You're not going to give that up without a fight. So I don't think she's necessarily saying that there will be a contentious fight over it. She's just saying if we get that that far, we're going to be looking at legal issues, I think. Um, But forcing that through is going to be hard. So what you need to do is a voluntary... (laughs) Uh, a series of agreements across these seven states of 40 million people with all these different water rights to say, this is how we need to use water now over the next 50 years, given what we're facing. And that is something that you can't really impose on anyone. That's got to come through negotiation, which given getting to this point has taken 11 years, that could be really take a long time yet.
1: Ugh. All right. Well, Anthony, thanks for taking us through that. That's fascinating stuff. Appreciate it. Hello, Viewsroom listeners. I'm Clara Ferreira-Marcos in
2: Singapore, and I'm chatting today with my fellow colonist, Duna Galani, based in Mumbai. Now, Indian Prime Minister Narendra Modi is fighting to be re-elected as the country prepares to go to the polls in just a few months. His landslide victory in 2014 had commentators then talking about potential three-term leadership, and now that's really looking like wishful thinking. As a sign of that, is government's last pre-election budget announced on Friday is packed with handouts Now, Una, you've been looking at a lot of these spending plans and, and you've been looking also at what India might look like without Modi, this tea seller turned politician, took the country by storm only a few years ago. How did we get here? And what should we think? What should we make rather of this budget, which really looks like a bit of a departure for Modi's government?
3: Look, This was a pre-election budget and the extent of the handouts. I mean, we we saw a lot. You know, we had a minimal annual income for farmers. We had a new pension scheme for the needy. Uh, That's going to support people like those poor guys who drive those three wheel auto rickshaws and sleep in them as well. You know, that's all um, for me. That's all betrayed the government's fears that they could lose their grip on power. But this was a pre-election budget in what looks like a tight race. So I think it was unrealistic to expect anything less. There's no
2: question that he's tackling some of the really big problems, not least rural poverty. But hadn't they prided themselves on on getting the deficit under control?
3: Yeah, they they had. And, you know, they to some extent, they have done that. You know, they've reduced the deficit from, you know, almost 5 percent five years ago. Now there is a sort of a general feeling that they can afford to stay at around 3 percent, which is where they are now. But, you know, foreign investors seem to be pretty happy. You know, India's attracting record amounts of FDI more than China for the first time in a decade. But we do need to watch a couple of things. And one of those is the extent of off balance sheet spending that we're seeing. And we're seeing the government increasingly root more of its capital expenditure through state owned companies. And that's beginning to start to undermine Modi's reputation for prudence.
2: Okay. And if they're setting aside fiscal prudence, and you're you're talking about this a little bit, but what else could be jettisoned? Apart from off-balance sheet spending, what else should investors be looking for? And and should we worry that India is perhaps getting caught in, in a bit of a populist moment?
3: Yeah, I mean, Modi is an economic populist, but populism is not necessarily bad um, if it's something that is just popular with the masses. You know, he's determined to lift up the poor and provide a basic social net for them. But he is prudent by heart. And I think if this government is elected, we will see them do more to um, rein in the finances going forward. We will see privatisations of things like Air India and even the country's banks. And I think that will help to raise critical funds to stop any further deterioration of the situation.
2: And what if he's not re-elected? I mean, that now looks like a possibility people are talking about in a way that they weren't, you know, even a few months ago. If he's not re-elected, which of his reforms do you think the opposition might reverse, even some of the perhaps headline grabbing ones?
3: Look, I don't think any of the headline grabbing reforms on things like tax and bankruptcy are going to be reformed, certainly not like we saw in Malaysia. But I think what we will see is, I mean, you know, you've got to think about Modi. There's the good, the bad and the ugly. Um, some of the bad and the less attractive stuff about what Modi has achieved is, is how he's dealt with minorities uh, in a, in a very diverse country there's been a lot of communal tensions and he's been quite slow to speak out on some of this stuff he's you know he's ruled with an iron grip he's forced through big economic I would I don't even know whether to call them reforms but you know when he suddenly banned big banknotes overnight that caused massive amounts of disruption and it didn't really achieve anything economically so all of this has contributed to some extent to you know shifting the consensus on corruption and he's achieved that through reforms but also with through ruling with a bit of an iron fist and I think if he is not re-elected one of the things that we will see is that other leaders will be softer on this sort of stuff. I'm not saying that Modi's government is not, is is untainted. There's certainly been lots of allegations about impropriety and acquisitions of things like Raphael Jets from Francis de Salt, but they haven't really stuck on the electorate so far, and they haven't enraged them like they did in 2014 against the uh, opposition Congress, well, the ruling Congress party at the time. So I think, you know, if, if Modi goes, I think other leaders will be softer on this front.
2: Is there anything that we should think about in terms of what the opposition might want to do in economic terms?
3: You know, it's really difficult at the moment, because at the moment, this is really an election about whether you vote for Modi or whether you don't vote for Modi. The opposition at the moment is consists of a ragbag group. There's the Congress Party, which has dominated India's elections since independence. And then there's a number of other players, including the chief minister of West Bengal, um, Mamta Ban- Banerjee. And it's really unclear who would come to power if Modi and the BJP were out at the moment. So, you know, I think it's far too early to be thinking about what kind of economic agenda they would be pursuing. But I think that it's certainly clear that the BJP seems to have a bit of a clearer economic agenda than anyone else at the moment.
2: Brilliant. Thank you very much. I will watch out for that over the coming weeks and months. Thank you very much, Una.
1: All right, that's our show for this week. Thanks to Clara Fiera Marquez and Una Galani and, of course, Anthony Curry for that insight. Um, we'd like to thank our producers, Freddie Joyner and Andrew D'Antonio as well. And thanks to you, our listeners, for tuning in. Check us out every day at BreakingViews.com. Subscribe to The Views Room on iTunes and please do share your opinions about our show. Join us again next week for another edition.